This episode could contain profanity. It's up to me, I guess. Your Saturday could contain a gist newsletter. To sign up for it, our once-a-week newsletter, go to slate.com slash gist news. It's Tuesday, January 15th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. A court ruled today that asking about immigration status on census forms was unconstitutional. William Barr spent the day talking to senators. And uh, as attorney general, the phrase best we could hope for out of this president came to mind. Also, poisoning from opioids specifically past car crashes as the likeliest form of accidental death. Okay, I thought maybe it's because car crashes went down. So it's actually secretly a good thing. I mean, no, that's not what happened. Both went up the last year for which they have stats. Opioids just went up by more. Oh, yeah. And the Brexit deal went over like a lead meringue. But I'm not here to talk about that. You see, I have an extra long spiel today, one I've been thinking about for a little while, ever since the report came out that President Trump might be an agent of the Russians. And I got to thinking, well, what if he wasn't? What if he's been doing all this stuff and acting this way, not as an agent, not even as someone who knew the Russians were trying to help him? What if we took Trump at his word that he had no knowing interactions with the Russians? So what I do is I go over key moments of his presidency with the idea of accepting as our basis the fact that he was innocent of everything he's been accused of regarding the Russians and still asking, What does that say about the decision-style tactics and intelligence that he displayed? I think he may come out looking better if he were just a Russian agent. But first, the former head of the Nuclear Regulatory Agency, whose take on nuclear is now no. He is against it. Confessions of a rogue nuclear regulator, Greg Yatsko, up next. The promise of nuclear power was once that it would make energy too cheap to meter. But then, in 2001, The Economist magazine, aware of that quote, did a reassessment of the industry and said it would be too expensive to matter. Now, a fascinating voice, Gregory Yatsko, who's the former chairman of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, has weighed in and says, sort of contradicting his life's work, I know nuclear power is a failed technology. Gregory Yatsko joins me now. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Thank you, Mike. So listeners should know, let's orient everyone with who exactly the chairman of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission works for, how you get the job, how political an appointment that is, who you were when you started. So you could take it from there. Well, sure. Well, I, I started my career really as a scientist. I got a PhD in physics and then came to Washington to do public policy and try and take some of the things I'd learned in science and and turn them into practical uh, work in in government and in policy. And along the way, I started with a congressman from Massachusetts named Ed Markey who introduced me to the world of nuclear power. And from there, I I got a job working with Senator Harry Reid who was a Nevada senator who had a lifelong mission to stop the nuclear waste repository in Nevada called Yucca Mountain. And so he needed a physicist to help him with that work and, and I got the job and 
uh, from there, uh, got interested in, in how the whole industry is regulated and eventually wound up as a commissioner on the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Now, as a scientist, how much of your work was with nuclear power specifically or, or nuclear issues? Prior to coming to government, very little. I studied a very esoteric aspect of very, very small particles uh, that in some way relate to nuclear power, but not in a practical way. So I want to make clear that even though Mark is Democrat, Reed's a Democrat, yours, your position is, and, and politicians appoint the commissioners, yours is supposed to be factual and apolitical and has been over the course of that agency, yes? Correct. It's, a, it's an organization that is led by a five-member body, uh, appointed by the president, confirmed by the Senate, but with the expectation that people will come to it with an objective look at the technology and the responsibilities of regulating it. Now... A quote, a pull quote from, in fact, the press material for this book, and I've seen this quoted elsewhere, you, you saying, I know nuclear power is a failed technology. For, for how long? For over a decade, you were not of this belief. Is that right? Yeah, when I came here to Washington, I was a scientist. So issues like nuclear power were intriguing to me as a scientist because it's a very interesting technology. It has tremendous benefits because you can generate a lot of electricity in a fairly stable way without the kinds of harmful air pollutants that we think of when we think of coal plants and gas plants, the smokestacks spewing this stuff into the atmosphere. And you don't get that with nuclear power. So you know, going into this, I was always very agnostic about it and intrigued by it because of the technology prowess. All right. So tell me about Fukushima and what your job in the U.S. was or what your interest was and how you came to learn and visit there and, and really take lessons away. Yes. Yeah, so Fukushima was a really interesting uh, event. We, I got a call very early in the morning uh, on March 11th saying that there had been an earthquake in Japan and we were worried about plants in the United States because of the potential for a tsunami wave that could come all the way across the Pacific Ocean and potentially affect the reactors in, in the west coast of California. Beyond that, I didn't really think that I would get so heavily involved in it. But as the accident progressed and given that it was, one, a, a reactor based on U.S. technology and, two, it was in a country that had very strong – relationships with the United States and a, a strong ally of the United States with a huge U.S. military presence there, all of a sudden our expertise became really invaluable as the U.S. government became enmeshed in responding to this incident as it really got worse and worse in Japan. So what, what did you do? What was your job? Yeah, my job was really to be the primary technical advisor to, to the president, to the U.S. government as we figured out how to best assist the Japanese. And that rolled over then into really providing advice to the Japanese government as well. We wound up staffing up our operations center here at the NRC in Washington, and we operated 24 hours a day providing technical support to the Japanese, supporting them as they, they look to deal with, with the crisis and supporting U.S. personnel in the military, in, in uh, the State Department who were in Japan trying to figure out how best to respond. So how did just on, I guess, a professional, if you want to get into personal level, you have this, uh, I wouldn't say the scales fall from your eyes. We always know, uh, as you make clear, uh, you're very skeptical of nuclear energy, but you have a job as a regulator and you uh, you maybe vote against allowing plants to be approved, but then if they are approved, your job is to properly regulate them. So we get that. It's like maybe a chief of police who has a certain stance against gun ownership, but the town allows it, and so he has to enforce the law as they are. But when things really change for you, how does it play out on a professional or personal level? Well, it really changed for me in the middle and after the accident because it, it was then that I realized that 
this perception that we'd created that we really can contain and control this technology and that we can prevent accidents, that that mirage lifted and I realized that that's really not the case. And so I really dedicated my career at that point to fulfilling a promise that I made to the American people many times, which was if we identified things that needed to be fixed about reactors in the U.S., we would work to fix them and we being the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which I was the agency I was in charge of. So that's really when I, I had really a singular focus that I really didn't necessarily have before that accident. And, and it's something that you know, brought me into conflict with a lot of my colleagues on the commission, with the industry itself, with members of Congress who were adamant about regulating the – or about allowing the technology really to continue to, to survive this accident. And so that you – know, it, it created a lot of um, interesting challenges from a personal perspective and, uh, and from a pro- professional one. How did you go about persuading – either the public or senators or politicians? What, you know, what were your avenues? Inside game, outside game, what techniques did you use? Probably, well, I used both. Uh, I, I used a little bit of an inside game. I'd been at the commission for a long time at that point and, uh, and knew, knew the agency well, knew the, the people really well and, and knew how to get some things accomplished. And then, you know, I turned to an outside game. I, I used the, the media. I gave speeches. I talked to, you know, sympathetic members of Congress and, and worked with them to try and move forward with an aggressive agenda. I was successful in some ways, not as successful perhaps as I would have liked in other ways. But one of the things I'm most proud of uh, from my time as, as chairman was a report that was produced by the agency documenting what went wrong and how U.S. plants should be designed better or should be changed to, to prevent something like that from happening here. If when you were pre-Fukushima, when you were running the uh, Nuclear Regulatory Commission and your job was to, you know, essentially be, be the cop, be, be the cop who was approving and making sure they go through the proper process, if the you of today, a person like the you of today came back and made the points that you're making to the you of t- 2009 or 2010, having come to the conclusions that you did, what would the 2009 Gregory say? Well, first of all, I probably would never be on the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, <laughs> I think, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, I would have to look back and, you know, and I would say that I, I think we need to phase out the technology, that it's time to start seriously looking at these safety issues and recognizing that these hypothetical, because in 2009, we hadn't seen the Fukushima accident and really recognizing that these hypothetical accidents really were possible. And I think that was the fundamental change that I went through was, you know, all these things that people could dismiss and say, well, that's not really going to happen or it's unlikely. All of a sudden in Fukushima, they all happened. And I remember, and this is a story I talk about in the book, looking at a, a staffer, one of these kind of grizzled uh, regulators, the kind of people you wanted at the NRC and in the middle of this accident, I remember him just slumping down in a chair and saying, you know, this isn't supposed to happen. What is happening isn't supposed to happen. And I think going back to 2009, you know, or, or looking back at, at that point, I'd you know be able to say that, that like, we cannot keep pretending that these kinds of accents that we can dream up in our calculations and and look at in our analyses are never really going to happen. We have to accept that they will happen at some point and we have to be prepared for that reality in a way that I don't think in 2009 we really were. So this is why I ask. I saw a speech that you gave, I think, at Stanford in 2010 and you came across, I mean, there was a line in the speech saying, I have my own opinions on this, but I have to oversee the process of making them uh, comply with the law and also defining what the regulation should be. And you came across as someone 
someone who wasn't at all gung-ho nuclear. In fact, the exact kind of person I'd want to head the Nuclear Regulatory Commission who wasn't uh, uh, a diehard um, devotee of the energy, was sufficiently skeptical, yet was still going about the job of properly approving these uh, this technology. Does it take, maybe not with you, but it just is part of human nature that you can present to even very smart scientists compelling hypotheticals, but until the actual, I mean, do you conclude that until the actual thing happens, until the catastrophe happens, it's really, really hard to reform an industry like that? Absolutely. It's, it's extremely hard. And, and I would say that the example we have in the United States is that it's even hard after, that the influence of the industry is extremely powerful. They have money. They have, they have allies in Congress, all of which makes for a very formidable force when it comes to trying to do reform. And that was probably one of my greatest sources of frustration is the fact that I was running into opposition after this Fukushima accident. And not exclusive opposition. There were some people within the industry who understood it and realized that they too had crossed this bridge where they realized these accidents really are possible. We have to really prepare for the reality of one of them happening. But it was not as many as I expected. And, and, and frankly, it was certainly not a majority of people who operate the plants. And that was really one of, I think, the, the sources of frustration and disappointment that I felt because at that point, it, you know, it was clear what was happening. You simply could no longer say – that these things really aren't going to happen, that the plants are safe. They, you know, they are safe as, as safe as we could make them, but we all had to acknowledge that any one of those plants in the United States could at any time have an accident. As I was watching your 2010 speech at Stanford, it was compelling. I was saying to myself, oh, this, this guy's good, or at least this industry has, is saying some interesting things. Like you talked about when you build in safeguards, they not only have to be redundant. So, you know, you have a bunch of, uh, you, you don't just have one thing that fails. You can, you have backup and a backup to that, but they have to be diverse. So I was thinking of the Titanic, which was supposed to be unsinkable because they had more chambers that were buoyant than any other ship, but then the iceberg rips through one, it rips through all of them. And I was thinking about all these different ways to build into safeguards. And do you look back and say, that was all bullshit? Or do you say that that can be applied, but just not in a context where failure is so dire? Yeah, I, I think what, what we just have to recognize is we can do all those things, but there's, there's going to be a way that, you know, there's going to be an iceberg that finds a, that finds a way to rip through the hull. Uh, and that's what we saw at Fukushima because, you know, you build in these redundancies, all of these layers of, of defense, and then you have an earthquake and then you have a tsunami following it. Yes. And it was the combination of those things that really caused so much of the damage. By itself, the earthquake may not have done it, but it was the tsunami that did it together. Well, we hadn't really thought about combining those two things together, which in hindsight seems obvious. But when you're looking at all of these things, you sometimes you can miss you can miss things. And, and nature is is creative, and nature is really infinite in its possibilities. And you can't ever in a calculation or computer analysis, come up with all the scenarios and dream up everything. And, and that's where the challenge is. At a certain point, you just accept there's this area in which things, bad things can happen, but we don't think it's very likely. And that's still the case with nuclear power. But when those bad things happen, they do have very catastrophic effects. And so you have to start thinking a little bit more about what really can go wrong instead of 
just erring on the side of, of how likely it is. Where do you think the industry goes from here? All the plants that were approved when you were there are still not working. Fresh in people's minds is Fukushima, but at one point fresh in people's minds were all the other uh, catastrophes that we spoke of. I think the industry is going to contract, uh, and you're seeing that already, and, it, and it's going to contract because it's it really can't compete economically with with really the things that are the good environmental solutions with wind, with solar, and as, as storage, uh, battery storage or other types of electricity storage become cheaper, you, you really start to see a system in which we can generate electricity in a clean way that doesn't present the kinds of hazards that nuclear power presents with catastrophic contamination of areas around plants or, or the other kinds of consequences we see. Confessions of a Rogue Nuclear Regulator is the name of the book, and Greg Yatsko is that nuclear regulator. He was the former chairman of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Thank you so much, Greg. Thank you, Mike. It was a pleasure. And now, the spiel. Donald Trump knew he was under FBI investigation early on in his presidency, and as soon as he knew about it, he let us know about it, tweeting a month and a half after being inaugurated that he had his wires tapped. His wires weren't tapped. Trump had been battling, if not those specific allegations of Russian meddling, then general allegations from many news cycles during the campaign. In July of 2016, Paul Manafort and Don Jr. had to deal with questions in one Sunday's worth of shows about the campaign's links to Russia. Three days later, Trump told CBS's Miami affiliate about Russian involvement. I think if I came up with that, they'd say, oh, it's a conspiracy theory. It's ridiculous. I mean, I have nothing to do with Russia. I don't have any jobs in Russia. I'm all over the world, but we're not involved in Russia. Later, he dismissed Russian allegations at a rally. I have nothing to do with Russia, folks, okay? I'll give you a written statement. Nothing to do. And then nine days before the election, he saw it necessary to assert via Twitter, quote, Russia has never tried to use leverage over me. I have nothing to do with Russia. No deals, no loans, no nothing. All of this is a reminder that the president knew there were serious allegations of Russian involvement during the campaign. Within a few weeks of being in office, he knew there was a federal investigation into campaign associates in Russia. And of course, within the first four months of his holding office, he fired James Comey over, in part, the Russia investigation. Now, you've probably read or seen countless arguments that are essentially asking, how would the words and actions of Donald Trump be any different if he were indeed a Russian agent? I want to do the opposite here. I'm going to ask you to assume, for the time being, that Trump is not a Russian operative, that he's not even a willing beneficiary of Russian operations. Assume that his explanations about Russian involvement in the election, shifting though those explanations are, are centered on this premise. Donald Trump never knowingly worked with the Russians to win election. With that as the baseline, I contend that the actions and statements that Donald Trump has made are at least as troubling and disqualifying as if he had been conspiring, or yes, colluding, with Russia the whole time. Take, for instance, the meeting that Trump took with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov and Ambassador Sergei Kislyak in the Oval Office a day after firing James Comey. 
a totally innocent, non-colluding Donald Trump decided to welcome two senior Russian officials into the Oval Office and to allow only the Russian state news agency, not U.S. journalists, to document the meeting. Even if Trump, totally innocent Trump, deduced that only his wild enemies could possibly believe he did anything wrong to get elected. He thought the best way to make this point was to meet with representatives of the foreign government accused of interfering with elections. In this meeting, he also divulged to the two Russian officials theretofore classified intelligence concerning Israel and ISIS. Maybe he was thinking, would a guilty man possibly act this way? The problem is that many observers strongly concluded yes. That alone is a problem for him. Two months after that meeting, Trump traveled to the G20 summit in Hamburg for his first ever meeting with Vladimir Putin. The two presidents, who in our scenario certainly did not commit a ruse to influence American voters, met out of earshot or U.S. monitoring of U.S. aides. There were actually two meetings in Hamburg between these two honest actors, and the second meeting went undisclosed for 11 days until it was reported by security consultant Ian Bremmer. And during this meeting, the Washington Post reported Trump seized his translator's notes and demanded that other administration officials not be informed about the details of the meeting. So why would a president who did not do anything wrong with regards to the Russians take these steps? And I'm, I really don't mean this sarcastic for our thought experiment. I don't mean this all as a rhetorical gamble, which will lead you to conclude there is no other explanation other than collusion. Just really imagine Trump's blameless, yet he acts furtively, wantonly, and in contravention of established diplomatic practice. One obvious explanation is that he has no knowledge of established diplomatic practice. I buy that, by the way. Another one is that he does not believe that anyone will find out that he met with Putin a second time and that he did not keep notes or that he did not use his own aids. Well, that was a miscalculation, wasn't it? As evidenced by the fact that I'm discussing it here. A third supposition is that Trump must think the importance of a private communication with Putin, who once again had nothing to do with collusion, conspiracy, or cover-up, but that private chit-chat outweighs the perception that the president of the United States is up to something fishy. In other words, Trump thought that even if the fact of his meeting were to be discovered— and even if its unusual circumstances would cause concern among the public or give ammunition to his critics, that none of that was as important as the substance of the totally above-board conversation he had with Vladimir Putin. I will generously say that was a spectacular miscalculation. So on his way back from the G20 aboard Air Force One, an unbothered, nothing-to-hide president dictated or as per Sarah Huckabee Sanders, weighed in as any father would, with an explanation of Don Jr.'s Trump Tower meeting with Russian lawyer Natalia Vetselnitskaya. The statement that emanated asserted that campaign matters were not discussed in this meeting. That was shown to be misleading at best, a lie at worst. So in our world, the world of the pure POTUS, this is an example of him deciding to go with the falsehood to explain the set of facts that were they to be disclosed honestly would in no way implicate the president, but he went with the falsehood instead. So in contributing to that Air Force One statement, Trump made a kind of dual calculation that A, his misleading explanation would do more to advance his narrative of innocence because, you know, he's truly innocent than the actual truth would help him. And also that B, the misleading version of those events would never be uncovered. Or maybe see if they were uncovered, it wouldn't look worse than simply offering the accurate version of the innocent, innocent meeting. 
So in our scenario of the unsullied POTUS, no thought is ever given to the legitimacy of the perception that something odd was going down. Trump doesn't think reasonable people or even unreasonable people who happen to add up to the majority of the electorate could come away concerned with meetings that seem so odd. It's exactly why he signaled his disapproval of a Russian sanctions bill that the Senate would pass 98 to 2 and that the House would pass 419 to 3. The president did not object to the bill out of fealty or obligation to the Russians. He did so because of his constitutional interpretation, and he did not care who knew it. He struck out against even Republican senators who may one day sit in judgment of him, but that was all outweighed by his assertion of executive powers. Trump doesn't care how his interactions with Russia or Putin look because Trump knows he is operating from a place that is pure. It is also why when the president met with Putin's on the sidelines of the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit in late 2017, he didn't give any credence to Putin's account of what he did or didn't do with U.S. elections. Quote, he said he didn't meddle. That's what he told Trump told reporters at the time. Went on to say, you can only ask so many times. I just asked him again. He said he absolutely did not meddle in our election. Perhaps it is because Trump doesn't have a guilty conscience himself that he can't conceive of another's guilt. Though it does seem that Trump has an easy time of seeing the darkness in others, and he has held that out as a virtue, as a skill in negotiation and sussing out people. Perhaps Trump calculates that a narrative that has Putin actually meddling in the election, but Trump not knowing about it or being the beneficiary of it. Perhaps Trump thinks this is too complicated for the public to process. In any event, Trump is extremely credulous of Putin's explanation. He at least doesn't treat it with the kind of scorn and suspicion he reserves for something really serious like Alec Baldwin's unflattering impressions on Saturday Night Live. Let's cut to Helsinki. Trump has a bona fide summit with his Russian counterpart. Remember, Neither Trump nor Putin has anything on the other one beyond whatever leverage statecraft and diplomacy can deliver. But by this summit, summer of 2018, there's a backdrop, really a clamor of experts across all levels of government who've concluded that the Russians did seek to influence the 2016 election. Pre-summit, Trump takes to Twitter to bemoan the sorry state of U.S.-Russian relations, which Trump blames on the Mueller investigation And the Russians sign off on that. And then, innocent of intent and action, Trump stands alongside Putin. He's asked about the tone and language that he used to confront his counterpart about election interference. And Trump says, quote, I have uh, President Putin. Uh, He just said it's not Russia. I will say this. I don't see any reason why it would be. Why? Why? Why did he say this? What would explain such credulity? Once you've ruled out that the president fears that he's making an inculpatory utterance because he's guiltless in our scenario. Remember that one explanation could be the one explanation could be that he highly prizes the norms of diplomatic decorum. He refuses to appear confrontational when standing next to another leader. Remember, this is from a man who berated the president of Canada, America's closest ally of being, quote, dishonest and weak. So another explanation is that Trump so fervently knows that he did not benefit from Russian interference that he simply cannot conceive that the Russians even interfered. Or perhaps he calculates that whatever he says, his supporters will believe it. So why not say there was just no wrongdoing rather than to wade into gray areas? I mean, that might complicate the support of the faithful. Now, the White House acknowledges that whatever Trump's calculation was in the moment, he should have said something slightly differently. 
because they engaged in the post hoc pas de deux of insisting that Trump misspoke. I said the word would instead of wouldn't. The sentence should have been, I don't see any reason why I wouldn't or why it wouldn't be Russia. So just to repeat it, I said the word would instead of wouldn't. The words, why would they, when he meant, why wouldn't they interfere with the election? The quibbling over words doesn't change the fact that Trump stood shoulder to shoulder with the man who's casting a shadow over his entire presidency and essentially embraced him without qualification. Here's an analogy. A man is accused by his spouse, his children, his co-workers, and his friends of having an affair. The man then seeks out the alleged other woman and ostentatiously flirts with her at his daughter's wedding. Perhaps you could say the man is so convinced of his own rectitude that he goes overboard to show that he has nothing to hide. Or you could conclude the man has really misread the situation. There are so many other examples of Trump going light on the Russians or missing an obvious opportunity to chastise the Russians for their misdeeds. Let me take just one. The administration did issue real punishments for the Russians' attempt to assassinate their former agent in Britain. But Trump never once mentioned the Skirples by name. Instead, France, Germany, the UK, and US issued a joint statement, and any admonishments that did flow came from the State Department. It was an easy chance for a non-colluding president to show that he could stand tough. So why wouldn't he? Perhaps dedication to the project of improved relations with Russia? But wouldn't the sanctions rebut that explanation? Perhaps a total unwillingness to give his political enemies an inch, to dignify the notion that the Russians could be bad actors in any realm. Well, one is weak and the other is obstinate, and neither are smart choices. Perhaps Trump so enjoys tweaking his opponents, the Democrats, that he could not help but appoint as head of the Department of Justice Criminal Division, a former employee of Alpha Bank, who is paid to defend the Russian bank against accusations of suspicious contacts with a Trump Organization computer server during the election. Maybe this isn't the act of a guilt-laden man covering his tracks. Perhaps it's the actions of a gleeful provocateur raising the specter of a boogeyman to confuse and frighten his opponents. Whether it's to own the libs, feed his own ego, ignore all perceptions, or plow headfirst into the fire, Trump, even an innocent Trump, has acted in ways that are inexplicably self-destructive. So are we to conclude from these examples that Trump must be guilty of being in on the con? I don't think so. I think there's another explanation, and the explanation is right in front of us. Donald Trump is miscalculating, foolish, incompetent, poorly counseled, impetuous, and unable to read the mood and concerns of the public. That is, frankly, very much in keeping with what we know about Donald Trump, and in many ways it's easier to accept than the idea that he's a Russian agent. Trump, as enthrall or employ of the Russians, argues that he has betrayed his office. Trump, as innocent of Russian influence, but acting this way anyway argues that he's been betrayed by his own profound inadequacies. And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader and Pierre Bienname are producers of The Gist. They ask you to assume, what if the spiel wasn't all said in one take? What if there was a lot of cutting and pasting and what we call pickups? Then what would you say about this Mike Pesca? Hmm. 
TJ Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcast. She is a rogue senior producer of Wondery Podcast because she has come to believe they are unsafe at any playback speed. The gist, I am tackling my next thought experiment. What if Ivanka Trump had back knee and cankles? Would her life be any different? Okay, same question with Melania. Oomperu depperu duperu, and thanks for listening.